My name is Chris Blitzarves, and welcome to Chasing Your Greatness. Today I'm joined by freelance journalist Megan Huswaite. Megan has spent almost 20 years covering all aspects of the sporting landscape in a number of different ways, from print media to radio to podcasting and even on screen, hosting a number of shows from a number of different sports. She's incredibly well respected within the media world and has worked in some of the most renowned and highly regarded media outlets we've got, such as News Corp, SEN, Fox Sports and ESPN. Megan is perhaps most recognized for all of her work within the sporting landscape, specifically the Women's National Basketball League, as a sideline reporter, podcast host, and a master of ceremonies. A strong advocate of women's sports, Megan is always driving to bring exposure to these national, international, and Olympic-level athletes that we're lucky enough to have playing within our country. She's also played a vital role in bringing awareness to issues that can often be left unsaid such as Canberra Capital star Alex Button's battle with domestic violence, former Opals captain Jenna O'Hay's mission to improve awareness around suicide and mental health issues that we're surrounded with today, and how the Southside Flyers have kept Jenna's crusade going with their annual Lifeline round. Something that was a little bit closer to my heart that Megan brought awareness to was the plethora of mums in the league that are simultaneously juggling their careers and motherhood an incredible feat which no doubt doesn't get anywhere near the credit that it deserves today we discuss megan's headstrong mindset and how her passion and desire to do her job well has allowed her to overcome adversity and find a way to make it work in times where most wouldn't how her years covering elite athletes and the relationships she's formed with them has taught her that sometimes being vulnerable and leaning on others for support is a key part of bouncing back from life's low points, building resilience and growing as a person. Megan's passion and dedication to her craft shines through in this chat and has left me with an increased desire to be the best I can be with everything I can do. A lesson in understanding your why, this conversation provides a view into how a consummate professional goes about her business. Just a disclaimer, we do discuss some topics that can be confronting and may raise some issues for you or those you care about. If these do raise any feelings and if you need any support, please reach out to Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au. Anyway, on to my conversation with Megan Huswaite. Rightio. Welcome to uh, to the podcast, Megan Huswaite. Hi, Chris Blitzarves. Great to be with you. I appreciate it. Oh, you're sounding very professional. <laughs> very professional. <laughs> um, very excited to have you part of part of the podcast. When I was starting to put together uh, a wish list, I guess if you want to put it that way, for, for guests that I'd have, you were one of the first that popped into my head, mm. purely for the fact that you seem to be in my chair i think more often than not um (laughs) so it would be and we've known each other for a little while so it'd be nice to get you on the other side of the mic and just kind of pick your brains about about life and and everything that you've done up until this point in your career um so i guess that's a good starting point because you do you are a a woman of many talents so maybe just start with a, a little bit about what you do and what you've done and and where we are now sure 
Um, I describe myself as an unrestricted free agent. I know that's an AFL. <laughs> that's a sporting term. I like sporting it. term. Yep. Uh, so it's been it'll be six years this year since I went out freelance, which is probably the best professional decision I've made after uh, probably. It was probably about 13 years I'd been working, doing the full-time thing across newspapers and radio. And um, I'd, I'd known for a while I needed a change, but probably didn't know how to take the jump. And I was overseas for my 30th and um, heard that my work was doing a round of redundancies. And I thought, I'm going to put my hand up for a voluntary redundancy and uh, got it. And I think financially it just gave me a safety net to go out and do my own thing Mm. and uh yeah it's been it's been a great five years um obviously sort of at least one year of COVID interruptions in there which was a huge learning curve how you would have been what two years into two or three years into yeah you're doing your own thing yeah how did how did that go oh I think at the time you sort of with a lot of things you're in fight or flight and I just had to get by so I was very lucky to be able to get some Centrelink um, job seeker or keeper because I just wouldn't have survived Um, I had you know enough savings to live off for a while but you know we were in lockdown for a lot of a year Mm. and a half and I sort of set my year up by the two seat like winter and summer sport and I guess my key to freelance life has been having some some key pillars through those seasons so it might be weekly work a few weekly gigs um that if that's the bare minimum I can live off that and then I've got the flexibility to take on any work that comes in or pitch other Mm. projects so I had a few gigs locked in some of them were new actually in 2020 and um they just went up in smoke Mm. like everything did so um yeah that was an interesting time but i i think i definitely have a greater appreciation for what i do and the variety of work whether it's working and writing from home or working at live sport Mm. in front of a crowd and having all that back again or emceeing events you know we lost events for a long time Mm. so i think i i have a new appreciation for all all that jazz now yeah i think um they would have much much around i like everybody around mentally as well but like you said being in that fight or flight mode like man it was it was a crazy time and we were we were lucky i know i know steph and i were incredibly lucky we were because at that time i was doing my own snc work yeah privately yeah you were um and i just got a job down in Geelong at a school which went from being you know uncontracted strength and conditioning work in the private sector which realistically is is you know money for time and then into a locked in 12-month contract which rolled over in an ongoing position in a government job which was essential work and Mm. like it and we were living in a shoebox apartment in Paran, which was like a hotspot for COVID too. And I do remember that apartment. Moved down, no, no shit, moved down seven days, like one week before the first lockdown hit, got out of a shoebox apartment 
into a three bedroom house, the big backyard with, you know, a six month old. Yeah. She's flying around too. And, oh, it was, we were so lucky. So, so lucky. But yeah, for other people that I used to work with too, like being in that position where you'd have, oh, like they went from having, you know, 40 hours of work a week to four. And then just sitting around home, like watching the bills come in because they yeah. don't stop. People, no. don't, people don't stop wanting money. No. And it's, it is crazy to reflect on like we're recording at my um, house today and where we're recording is in a um, communal area and this was locked. So we couldn't use this area hmm. during lockdown. So it was pretty much my dog and I in my apartment for a lot of that time because I live by myself Um so it's it's really wild reflecting on those times, but thank goodness we're we're out of a lot of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back to living. Definitely. Well, I think a lot of people are probably over reminiscing about that time in their life. So let's yeah, let's move. Let's on. jump forward. <laughs> hey, let's jump forward. So so where where has your life as a freelance? Would you call yourself a freelance journalist? Yeah, freelance journalist, um, host. Um, MC, MC yeah. yeah, a bit of a slasher, yep. Chris Blitzer. Jack, you... Jack of all trades, or Jill <laughs> of all of trades. And... <laughs> master no, of all. No, 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 I'd say master of, master of all, master of all. So Thank you. It's good. So so where would you find yourself spending the most amount of your time now, or dedicating the most amount yeah. of your time now? Well, probably in front of camera, which it, it wasn't um, weighted that way, because as I said, I did sort of 13 years in newspapers that's where where it begun for me on a full-time basis when I was 17 and then in the latter stages of that really sort of immersed in radio at SEN which I loved and um and now I I always sort of had an interest in in doing on-air stuff and and probably that's the bulk of it now uh between WNBL, NBL1, um Premier Cricket so sort of a mix of um live sport and then shows as well so sort of panel shows um uh sort of at the desk format weekly shows that are on ko um so probably that's that's where it's weighed and then still writing still a constant so i'm still sort of writing every week in different um capacities and um and then throwing in a bit of mc work as well which i really enjoy beautiful yeah no that's cool where did the passion start because i know it's just mentioned getting into print media at 17 years old what lit the spark so i feel like everyone's got a whenever they end up in a career it's pretty rare to find someone who's been in a career that has been constant i guess since high school really like i know i haven't (laughs) i've sort of started doing one thing and shifted to something else and shifted to something else and i've got no idea where i'll be in five years time but it's it's cool to see and obviously within media, there's a whole bunch of different avenues you can take anyway. So mm. I guess, yeah, what, what sparked the interest for it all? I love that question because I remember the time so clearly. So I was in grade three and I was eight and we had an assignment where we had to um, do a news report, like record it on a cassette. And I just remember that so clearly. The house we lived in, you know, I, I sort of did mine that it was for no- Channel 9 News so that was when I wanted to be a journalist. Um, in terms of sport, just always loved sport. So I grew up in Ballarat and was just immersed in sport. I would watch it on the TV. I'd listen to it on the radio. I'd read the newspapers. 
but I was so sort of captivated by the sport around me in Ballarat. So from a basketball point of view, Robin Maher and Alison Cook were from Ballarat and were um, competing for the Opals at, you know, the Atlanta Olympics where we won the first um, Australian Olympic medal. We, you know, Tony Lockett was from Ballarat. We'd be, um, our, you know, mum would drive us to school every morning around Lake Wendouree and Steve Monaghetti would be running the lake. So we had so many visible sporting icons that were from Ballarat. And I just found that so inspirational that I didn't want to be, I never wanted to be an athlete. I wanted to um, tell the stories, report the news. Uh, but because I had those visible role models and I saw them in my in my town and then I would see them compete at the highest levels, it just showed me that there was a clear pathway to achieve what you wanted to achieve and that it didn't matter that you weren't from the city. Because mm. I think growing up, you know, and you're sort of from a regional, semi-regional well, area. I've, yeah, I I've guess when you were growing both, up, yeah. growing up Sunbury wasn't like it was, it city. Was, was yeah, it? it was. I guess it was as you know, if you want to put it in the metro regional category, it fell into metro. Yeah, but it was towards the outer outer skirts of that yeah. anyway. It was probably a bit more regional. Yeah, it had that regional that feel. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so um, obviously Ballarat a bit further away to Melbourne than Sunbury, but um, I think you know when you grow up in the country, you can often feel like you need to be in the city, you need to be in the thick of the action, but because I could turn on the TV and see Robin Maher or Tony Lockett or see Steve Monaghetti running the lake and then watch him at the Com Games. It was never a doubt that I couldn't achieve mm. my dream because of where I was from. Mm. So I think, and then that's probably why it's never changed. From eight years old, I've never, from eight to 17 when I started full time, never thought twice about it. Yeah. And I've never thought twice about it since yep. I've actually been in it. It's good. Like yeah. It's cool to, to see people that are, I guess, that headstrong about it too. Because it can, it, and it whether it is geographical, geographically related, like in terms of the country v city and you see everyone grow up in the country. And Ballarat's not a small town, but it has got that regional tag. And yeah. More to, yeah, like you said, to achieve anything, you've got to get in a big smoke and and get after it that way. But I think... It's cool just to see people that are just determined and go and get what they want to get. Like, there's no excuses around it. There's no, oh, I need, I need to be here or, you know, this isn't going my way. It's just, yeah, cool. Let's go and let's go and do it. Yeah. It's and awesome. I think that was probably on reflection what I had in me instinctively because when I was at school, I wrote for the local paper, The Courier, mm. and because I'd had that taste, I didn't want to go to uni. And I had a careers teacher that you used to say, you know, if you don't get into RMIT with this score, you're not going to be a journalist. But I had that practical experience. I used to take time off school to work at the paper and then I'd go back to school and it would I'd just be so down because I'd had this exhilaration of yeah. you know, working and writing and being published. Um, so I think that's, that taste was why I sort of knew that I wanted to take that pathway in rather than go to uni. And, and that's why I started working full time when I was 17. Yeah, it's, it's probably actually touches on 
some faults of the education system at the moment, doesn't it? But I think that's a that's a topic for another another <laughs> it's podcast. Another podcast. <laughs> I, I could good good few hours. <laughs> but um, so Courier was the first stop. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I um I started writing like for a youth page, just contributing. And back then, I'm pretty sure I used to handwrite the articles and submit them. Um, there wasn't sort of the emailing thing. Mm. <laughs> That's how long ago it was, Chris Blitzars. Um, oh, no, there's, a, there's a lost art in that. I think the ability <laughs> to write. To handwrite. cathartic. Sorry. Um, and then I wanted a cadetship. So that's like an apprenticeship, you know, media sort of version of, of a apprenticeship, which is usually three years in length. And um, that's how, you know, a generation or many generations of journalists got into it um, rather than sort of the school uni internship Mm. job um so i was applying for them in year 12 um there'd occasionally be a few you know advertised in regional towns and i'd apply for them and get a rejection letter but that was because i hadn't finished school <laughs> and then i uh, applied for one in horsham at the Wimmera times and i um, went up and got an interview and um and I got that job and I was going to start in February the following year. So it would have been February 2005. And uh, so, you know, over the moon, I think I might have just started exams. So like just starting exams, but I've got a job. Mm. And so I would have, you know, finished school, had the summer um, and, you know, had quite a few months leading mm-hmm. before moving up there. But um as a lot of regional newspapers, a lot of the journalists come from the city and they'd, you know, stay a certain amount of time. And so another journal had left and the editor called me or called the house phone (laughs) (laughs) and said um, that another journal had left and so they needed me to start now. Um, I hadn't finished school. So um, they found somewhere for me to live because I was 17 and... um, and then I did my, I think I had one more exam. And um, so I think I had that on the Friday. And um, and then my parents moved me up there and I started on the Monday. Wow. So I reckon I'd been working maybe a month before the VC results had even come out. And how much care did you give to those VC results when they None. came out? Like I didn't get a good score. Yeah. Um, I... I mean, the only study I've actually done is at high school because I didn't go to uni. So mm. it's all been practical experience. But it was funny because I was doing this. I was writing the stories about, you know, the Horsham College students getting their VC <laughs> results back and I was in the same boat. Um, yeah. So by the time I would have started that job in February, I had a few months under my belt. Um, awesome. And I just think you can't, you can't replicate that practical experience because I just learnt so mm. much i made mistakes um but you know i was a teenager so how'd you deal with that because there is a especially when you're incredibly passionate about something you want to do everything perfectly and you yeah you, you seek feedback but when the feedback's negative and or not negative maybe when the feedback's constructive and no doubt you've probably dealt with your fair share of negative feedback as well um but how did you, I guess, bounce back from, not bounce back, but how did you deal with making mistakes and failures and that kind of thing? Yeah. 
Um, it, I think too, because you're learning and working in such a fast-paced environment of a newspaper and deadlines and the paper's got to get out. So um, remember we had a sub-editor, oh no, a chief of staff, and he would um, give me feedback. And obviously I was 17, so like my writing wouldn't have been amazing. And um, I think being a teenager, that feedback at times was a bit confronting. And there was a senior journalist who was kind of like a grandma figure to me. She was a beautiful, beautiful lady. And I sat opposite her and I'd, um, she used to have a look at my stories before I'd filed them. And then I remember the chief of staff saying to her, to her name was Faye, um, like, you can't, can't do that anymore but she'd still let me sneaky send them over <laughs> for her to just have a look at why was that you reckon like, um, is that just a, a time constraint thing or do you i think it probably like a, that i had to learn yeah you know i had to just learn um, a bit of tough love kind of bit thing. of tough love yeah but yeah i was so lucky at that newspaper had like a, a really young editor who um him and that chief of staff saw something in me obviously in the interview and um, just a lot of really great journalists, um, experienced journos, people that knew the area well, um, that put together a great newspaper. And I grew up around them, you know, grew up as a person and as a journalist. I was only there three years, Mm. Um, but I learned so much because I was learning on the job. I was learning to deadlines. Um, And I think by the time I came to Melbourne, I was 20 Mm. and the people my age that had gone to uni hadn't finished uni yet Um, and I was sort of moving into the next stage of my career with three years of practical experience under my belt so I think it definitely gave me a head start Mm. it's yeah it's a it's an interesting argument isn't it like do you go out and work straight from school or even you know drop out of school if you're not enjoying it and find something you're passionate about and just dive in head first or do you commit to school and then go to uni and go that more traditional academic pathway like you know i know successful people that have come from both walks so there's probably arguments for both and i was talking to my brother-in-law about this a couple of days ago actually like the uni degree is almost like the ticket you need the ticket to get yourself in the door some at some places whereas it doesn't seem fair because you've got the experience, but they've got the ticket, mm. right? And it's so it's going to be it's going to be a constant thing that's going to you know people are going to be button heads over for years and years and years to yeah. come. But I think it does you know speak volumes of about having that experience under the belt and from an early age too. Yeah, because I think when I got um, the job that a job in Melbourne that brought me to Melbourne because. Um, you know, had to go obviously from Ballarat, went to Horsham, so you sort of go further out regional, mm. rural, um, to get to Melbourne. You know, it's not a straight back then. I don't know if it's different now, but I, I think, yeah, even so many journos from uh, Melbourne would go to uni in Melbourne and then get their first job in the country before coming back. It's kind of like that apprenticeship you've got to serve. Mm. But I think when I got my first job in Melbourne, it definitely helped that. I had three years of practical experience under my belt, whereas other people perhaps in that job hunt were coming out of uni, but had never worked in a newsroom before. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was it was definitely the most um, formative years, yeah, yeah, for me. When you actually hit the floor, 
or at the news floor in Melbourne. Yeah. Did you find that you had people that were, I guess, could be classed as your peers? Yeah. Stepping in alongside you and you had to kind of take on a bit more of a mentoring role because you'd had that experience under your belt? Not really. I think I still... Or was it more of like a kill or be killed type of life? <laughs> Newsrooms can be very much like that. Um, so that that job that I got in Melbourne was at Leader Newspapers and that was in 2007 and it was a time when, um, you know, suburban newspapers were still flourishing. So I think there was like 30-something local papers in Melbourne, you know, one for every sort of cluster of suburbs. Mm. And um, No, I know my, my mum and my brother were folding them up every week and delivering them around yeah. around Sunbury. Yeah, I, I remember that, those times well. Yeah, and so I um, I was working sort of in a city in news, not in sport. Um, that was part of the, you know, I had to sort of give up the sport to get the job here. But they'd said to me, you know, if something came up in sport, we'll certainly look at you. But it was, I, I was just sort of not thrown in the deep end, but doing things that I'd never done before police rounds I think I had a federal election um you know some dark stuff as well I'd been used to covering the Horsham Hornets and the Mm. Wimmera Football League and then doing some really heavy police stuff you Mm. know and writing about deaths and you know again I was still 20 years old like um so that was and I didn't know how to write news either or court stories and stuff so that was a really good learning curve. Again, had a young editor who was really encouraging. Um, definitely saw that, you know, I had the experience, but helped me sort of adjust to news. Um, and I think because of the big newsrooms, you know, and um, well-resourced, they were good newspaper times. Um, there was a lot of journos and there were some like me that had come from the country from other jobs. There were some straight out of uni. There were interns, a real mix of people. Um, yeah, they were good times before print started to decline and on reflection, it declined pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, I was talking to actually, to, to Body Nodger a few weeks back about the state of mainstream media and, and I guess the future of print media and it's, um, it's going to be an interesting few years, I think. Yeah. leaning forward you can see how much it shifted already like and body was definitely ahead of his time because i mean obviously had an amazing career at news corp as basketball writer and you know made that his own round but um starting his blog um basketball on the internet like just so clever and um he, he had that while he was still at the advertiser so um i remember the disappointment of the rio olympics for the Opals and just, I think it was on a Tuesday night that when we lost in the um, quarters and just on the Wednesday, just could not, was refreshing, refreshing, waiting for bodies, you mm. know, analysis. Take, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he definitely saw where that online world was going mm. because he he was an early, yeah, adapter with his blog. Mm. I guess it, it comes back to, just that ability to adapt and and shift and change your focus nice and quickly for I guess change with the times it's so true because um I often get asked about I think there can be a perception about freelance like it's really hard it's a struggle to get work but obviously my sort of um a big chunk of my career was newspapers and then moved into radio but by the time I went freelance in 2017 I could do a few different things so 
I think sort of those 15, 16, 17 years where a lot of the media industry, particularly in print media, were moving out through redundancies and that kind of thing, that you might have been in the um, gig for a long time, but writing might be the only skill you had. So I think I'm glad that I diversified because now I don't rely on one medium which is great in terms of getting work and income but it also keeps things exciting Mm. because I've got a real variety of work you know as I said before I could be riding at home in my trackies Mm. and I might be hosting an event or I might be um, on broadcast so there's a real I really like that variety but it's also important because I haven't put all my eggs in one basket yeah did you see did you see like, were you proactive with that? Did you see the decline of print media coming about and think, oh, I better add a couple more strings to my bow? Or did you just have that, I suppose, that that curiosity to learn and pick up new skills and try different things? And it just happened to coincide with the fact that print media was going yeah. down the toilet. <laughs> Definitely that. I was not, I didn't forecast it. Um, when I was at uh, Leader, I was at the Rise, AFL Rising Star lunch one year. And I saw um, Mark Doran, journalist that had, he hosted the afternoon show on SEN. This must have been 2008. And they were broadcasting live from the event. And I went and had a chat to him afterwards. And um, I think we exchanged business cards. How 2008 to exchange business, business cards? I don't do business cards anymore. I reckon I had, I had a stack of business cards <laughs> when I first got into the strength and conditioning world. That would have been in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I reckon I gave four of them out. <laughs> and that was it. Does Arlo draw on them now? Like no, his little I, I couldn't even pictures? tell you where they were. I, could, I, I used them as <laughs> like throwing darts or something <laughs> or coasters or something like that. Coasters. But I, could, I genuinely yeah. couldn't, couldn't tell you where they were or where they went. Oh, so, yes. yeah, business cards are very much a thing of the past. Past currency. Yeah, so we swap business cards. And um, so... At leader, I used to work Sunday to Thursday, have Fridays off. And so I went and had a coffee with him and um, I began working on his show on Friday. So um, even though I'd been a journo for like four, three or four years, that meant nothing in the radio space. So I'd go in on um, Fridays and like answer the phones on his show and print things out and just do that basic sort of stuff. And it was so exciting like to be part of a live, you know, environment and seeing how it all worked. And um, and so I did that for a while and, um, and I ended up being at SEN for 10 years as a casual. And I went from sort of working, assisting on those, that show and also the drive um, show on a Thursday night to producing footy. And I did a couple, I used to do footy every week and did a couple of grand finals and then got into on air. So sort of reporting, I'd do tribunal um, on Tuesday nights and report back into the news and to programs and then news reading and then like a couple of segments on shows and yeah, loved, loved SCN. It was just a, such a great time, just worked with great people on and off air and made so many friends and just loved radio and sports radio, like a 24-hour, 7, 24-7 um, sports radio station. Mm. Just like a dream. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. For some, yeah, for someone that, that 
came out of or well, back in grade three when you were you know penning your first sport report for channel nine news <laughs> like to you know to having it now where it's yeah 24 hours a day it's just that's that's the world you're immersed in yeah, yeah absolutely it'd be great it but was great like that would have taking the jump from from print to radio would have pushed you out of your comfort zone a little bit yeah because i for a lot of that time i was doing both together so i still had my full-time job and then um yeah a lot of the time um that i was still at leader and sen i'd work at sen like my whole weekend so i'd um you know work on those shows or do footy um i used to do work on the footy every saturday night and then go work at leader on sunday so I spent pretty much for a few years all of my time just working. But when you're working on sport and something you love, like it didn't feel like, oh, I'm working like seven days a week. It was always by choice. Mm. And they were both such different jobs, like writing about local sport and, you know, Steve and Big V and local footy and then going to SCN and working on different shows and working on the footy and, um, yeah, mixing with, you know, footballers that I grew up watching that were now retired and in the media and great callers like Anthony Hudson and people like that. So, um, yeah, I I just sort of had them both going at the same time, one as a full-time job, one as a casual. And then eventually when I finished at Leader and took that voluntary redundancy, I stayed at SCN, still on a casual basis. Um, and then that sort of became the pillar and then i sort of would take things on around what i was doing at sen yeah 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 how'd it go when you shifted to in front of the camera like how talk me through the the mental and emotional state of that because that would have been (laughs) no doubt pretty nervy like i remember even just sitting in here right like yeah i'm shocking in front of a camera really shocking like i bet you not though you probably feel that way but i bet you come across really natural well uh, maybe but I just no, I don't. It's not me. Like I can't. Sarah's brilliant at it. My sister's, yes, sister's yes. awesome at it. Like gets in front that. of the camera, we'll, <laughs> just knows where they all are, yeah. and will just gravitate towards the front of the lens. Yeah. Whereas I'll know where camera lenses are and just do <laughs> my bit to stay behind them. <laughs> but like even this whole podcast setup, like stopping and talking into a microphone. Yeah. It, it's gotten easier now. Yeah. I'm still nowhere near proficient at it i wouldn't think and the wheels in my head are turning quite constantly but like you get nervous the butterflies come in and your body kicks into gear and it's like all right let's go like the whole yeah. fight or flight sort of yeah thing. yeah like so how did that go was it where were there any nerves or you're just like nah this is awesome let's roll yeah i guess i i take everything whether it's a print interview whether it's a post-game interview on like WNBL, or whether it's my shows that i do at a desk I just treat it as a chat and some of that it probably started because back in the day you know I'd interview a lot of kids like in TAC Cup and you know teenagers often boys that wouldn't say boo and or would be nervous because so many athletes that I've dealt with over the years have never done that level of media so I think to start off with it was about creating a comfortable space for them to feel like it was a comfortable, safe space and we're just having a yak. It's not going to be like a hard-pressed question and answer. And then I think that's just what I do now. And, and some of the topics are obviously a lot heavier than others. Um, in terms of on air, I was actually 
in here where we're filming when I sort of got the green light. So um, the WNBL had been um, on ABC for decades and then for a few years we weren't on TV at all. And then we got a deal with Fox Sports for three years and that sort of coincided with when I went out on my own and I just wanted to be part of it. But it's an interesting niche because I'm not a play-by-play caller and I'm not an ex-player. So what do I bring? I'm a journo. So I wanted to do sideline. And, and I wanted to do sideline before that for a long time for WNBL. Um, and I just couldn't get an in for the first year. Like just had tried to ask who I thought were the right people for emails and contacts and actually did a um, almost like an audition tape with Brit Smart. I asked her whether she'd do it with me and she came into SCN one day and we filmed a mock interview. That but was actually going to be a part of my next question. Is, really? Is, is how did you, not the mock interview, but <laughs> how, how did you go about getting yourself into yeah. into the WNBL and, yeah. and into like that new deal with Fox Sports? Yeah. Like when you mentioned that, you're just like, oh, well, we've got a new deal. I wanted to be a part of yeah. it. Like I feel like people nowadays go, oh, geez, I really want to do that. They don't know anything about it. They kind yes. of just sit, twiddle their thumbs and like, oh, yeah, it'll come. Yeah. Or yeah. the ones that actually see those opportunities and think nah let's let's go let's go get it yeah well it was the first year yeah I had no luck and I guess by then because I covered WNBL at leader from 2007 so by 2017 it had been probably 10 years of covering it for the paper so I had good contacts knew the league all that kind of stuff um then it rolled to the second season of that three-year deal and I remember watching a game on a Saturday and there were just the two commentators it was a game in Townsville I reckon and they were both men and I just thought nah nah where's the female representation like the expert was an ex-NBL player and I was like okay in Townsville whatever city where there's a WNBL club there's 20 past WNBL players who could do that position um Carly Wilson was part of the commentary that season and I knew her fairly well and I said to her do you have a contact for the producer so I just sent the producer an email said who I was um said that I really wanted to be a part of it and that that weekend uh Danny Nong Rangers at the time were playing Boomers so the big derby and that was the TV game um and I said you know I um can bring news I can bring like this is what I can bring and um she called me the next day and I was in here when she rang me and um and I was very like very much just put myself out there and she was like look um yeah like would like to have you involved can't pay you um and I think I'd said in the email you know this game's Saturday and I'm free like I can be there on Saturday and she was like okay like we'll get you on at half time um to do you know a some news and at that stage Sarah and I were doing the podcast the WNBL show at SCN so um I turn up to Dandenong and like had hair hair and makeup which I was so excited about in like one of the change like literally one of the old change rooms and went on and did like a new segment at halftime and so I did that for every Victorian game and what year was this uh 2017 so it was it was around the time sarah um sarah did her acl i reckon i was part of their strength i reckon you were then yeah and i remember walking into the gym because before (laughs) pre-game right pre-game there's a a little weight there's a little weight room (laughs) right by the court 
<laughs> and pre-game myself and, and Mick. Mick, who are our who are the high performance guys, we'd always go in and we'd always get a little pre-game lift because we just felt like that was part of our routine and, and put us ourselves in the best headspace to help the girls. And we walk in there and there's just makeup everywhere. everywhere. There's like chairs and mirrors and yeah. lights. And we walked in like, what the hell is this? Where's our squat rack going? It'd become the gym. Yeah. 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 So and that was it. So now it's your that fault. That was me. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, and look, I didn't even care about being paid because I just wanted the opportunity. Like I wanted the foot in the door. And I reckon by Christmas, Denise, this was the executive producer who was fantastic. Uh, still kept the email she emailed me and said um like i'm happy to let you know that um we can put you on a contract for the rest of the season so we can pay you this much a game we'll have you for all the victorian games and i was like ripper and so um did that and then it got to um it got to finals and uh there was a pretty sure there's a final in adelaide and it was might have been a saturday night or no, it might've been a Wednesday. Anyway, um, some of the Fox team had other commitments and I'd sort of got wind of that. And I thought, I reckon there's an opportunity for me here. And so I said, if I can get myself to Adelaide, um, I'm available. Cause I knew just cause of budgets and stuff. And I wasn't part of the original plans. They weren't gonna fly and accommodate me. And so I did sideline in a final, which was a huge, step up from starting a quarter of the way through doing a halftime news segment Mm. so by the next season which was the last season of that third year deal i did sideline so um we usually had two maybe two people on sideline um but by that last year i was doing sideline um you know did a grand final um and yeah that was kind of how it started so I'm glad I sent that email. <laughs> yeah. What was that just a matter of just, I'm going to find my own way to do it. Like just that you being, you know, stubborn in a good way yeah. and, and very determined and, and not afraid of failure and not yeah. afraid of getting knocked back, which is like, I will get knocked back 101 times, but I know that 102 or 103 or 104, yeah. they're going to go, yep, cool. Come on in. For sure. Because, um, I'd tried the previous year and just couldn't get a direct in. Yeah, and so those those that first year, like, what did you do? And then was it just a matter of, did you just keep doing the same thing and keep banging down the door the same way, or did you? Like, I think pivot I might have shift, left or? it. Yeah, I think after trying preseason, I think I left it, and um, so that um, that season. Sorry, the the first season I did WNBL broadcast was end of 2018. Sorry, so 2017 when Sarah did her ACL was when we did the podcast. So I think pre-season I tried to get in on the broadcast, had no luck, but was like, I'm going to do like create a podcast, which yeah, did with Blicky. And we did that for the whole season and I was doing other bits and pieces. So I think I was just busy enough doing whatever. And then, yeah, that second season, I was just like, no, I'm going to send an email because I've got a direct contact now. And I just put myself out there in the email and it just was perfect timing. There was a game in Melbourne that weekend. It was a big, you know, the two rivals and I had something I could offer. I think you've got to go to people with one, what you can bring, but something that's doable, not just, I want to be part of it, like sort of have the 
balls to say what that might be. Mm. Um, and I just thought, I, I don't really mind about rejection because I'm, I'd prefer to be rejected from putting myself out there then it's very rare that people are going to just call you with an amazing opportunity out of the blue. Mm. So I'd prefer to die trying. Mm. Yeah. It's funny because people assume that that's going to happen. It does not happen. It's crazy. It doesn't happen. And I think I'm pretty good with initiative. Like I'll have a crack. Um, And often a lot of things do come from reaching out. And I think people appreciate and recognize initiative. Mm. I think it's a good sign. If you're prepared to put yourself out there, if you do get an opportunity, you're probably going to be proactive. Mm, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And it, it does it. You've got to like, and that comes down to, you know, embracing the potential for rejection and embracing mm. the potential for failure and think, oh, well, if this is the way that it goes, that's fine. Yeah. Because you learn things from that. Yeah. And I think like last year, 2022, I did have, um, I'd say rejections. Like I, I don't... I don't know if I would classify them as failures, although they felt like failures at the time. Um, so it's interesting that sort of, yeah, nearly two decades in, I perhaps wouldn't have thought that there'd still be setbacks and rejections and failures coming thick and fast. But um, although I didn't reach some of the goals I had last year, there was they were still really good learning experiences um and sometimes i think they can probably hurt more when you feel a bit blindsided but they teach you things i know that's a cliche but definitely the stuff that's hurt um has taught me a lot um but yeah i didn't see some of that stuff coming Mm. in 2022 how did you cope with it? I think, um, you know, going back to 2020, I think we'd just gone into lockdown when it was announced that Australia was hosting the Women's World Cup. And I just thought, wow, like what an opportunity to have a World Cup in your home country. And I just wanted to be part of that broadcast. Um, and then it, I think because there's so many pieces and parts to um, those sort of things, it's not just a one-stop shop one point of contact and I'd been sort of assured that I was on the right track and I was waiting um I was going to be contacted and I hadn't been and so by the time I followed up it was too late and this was still a few months out from the tournament and I'd been umming and ahhing over how hard to push and do I wait I'd been told I was going to be contacted so I waited and then it turned out it was it was too late, I'd missed the boat. Um, and I was just gutted. Um, I was just, I think it was May last year. So it was still f- several months out from the tournament and it just, just gone. Like my chance to be part of that had just gone. And um, yeah, it just was so disappointing because I just so wanted to be a part of it. Um, and then I thought, okay, I've got to turn my attention to how else I can be part of this tournament. How can I contribute? How can I be part of it? How can I cover it? Because it's like a once in a lifetime opportunity and it was so hard to get gigs. It was so hard to get gigs at the World Cup. And um, people would say to me, you know, oh, it's so exciting, like you must be so excited, you must have so much on, or are you part of the broadcast, you must be so busy. And I'm thinking, 
Um, if only you knew. Yeah, if only you knew. Mm. It killed me. And um, in the end, I gathered enough work to make it doable, but I paid for my own own accommodation. Um, I had my flights covered, which was great, but, you know, what the accommodation cost was pretty much what I earned over the tournament. And, you know, I had little bits and pieces and then a great opportunity came up where I was approached um, uh, to host an event with Brianna Stewart where she was um, launching her shoe and it just sort of lifted my confidence again because I just felt so deflated. Um, And a lot of it was hard. I mean, it's ego, but a lot of it was hard. Like, yeah, telling people when they asked that, no, I wasn't a part of the broadcast or I wasn't doing this or I wasn't doing that. And then when the tournament was on, people texting like, where are you? Like, what are you doing? And that was hard, but you know, it was a bigger picture and I was there and I was happy with, you know, the work I produced and the Stuart thing was amazing, like mm. an amazing opportunity. And, um, but it was still a setback because I, at the end of the day, I didn't achieve my goal. Um, yeah. So, so how did you pivot from that? So from being, you know, having something that you were so, so hungry to get. Yeah. Just being swept out from underneath you with realistically no no reason or explanation. Yeah. It's like, sorry, not happening. Like I, you take that, that initial, was it just are you sitting just in that, in that feeling for a day or two days or a week or whatever it is and then going, righto, enough of this woe is me mentality. Do we just get up one day cold shower and away you go yeah yeah I definitely had time to wallow and I cried a lot like um I, because I think there was a series going on friendlies um Australia Japan and I didn't know sort of what was happening around the broadcast and then found out that that had all been locked in too and I would have loved to have been a part of that and that I thought would have helped the overall picture of making it to the World Cup commentary so those both things sort of landed at the same time and I just felt like I'd had two massive blows to the guts and I just felt winded and um I reckon they happened within two days of each other and I was just I cried so much and I'm not when I say I'm not a cry I cry at ads and like animal videos and (laughs) stuff but I don't cry about myself and my Mm. own issues and I was just gutted um and then I picked up I ended up picking up two games for that Australia-Japan series, which was an amazing experience. Um, and ESPN had said to me, like, our teams, our commentary team sorted, but if anything changes for the World Cup, we'll let you know. So I just followed up, you know, maybe one or two more times. Nothing came of that. And it wasn't until right, sort of really right before the World Cup that I sort of had accommodation locked in and everything because I just didn't know if I was going to have enough work to sustain the output financially to go away for 10, 11 days. And um, so it was really right up until the 11th hour. I scrapped and scraped for work. I took whatever could come my way. I made it work and I was like, no, I'm going. Like, I'm not going to miss out altogether. But I would never compare myself to an athlete, but I felt like in the initial sort of devastation, maybe maybe that is a little insight into how missing out on selection feels like for something like a home world cup where you think you've got the runs on the board and you think there's a spot for you and Mm. you don't make it and you didn't see it coming. Mm. Um, But I'm glad that I made it happen. You know, it wasn't perfect, but not much is. No, 
I was still there, yeah. you know, I was still yep. there. I wrote for News Corp. I hosted some events. Um, I did the Stewart thing. You know, I got to watch the Opals and LJ. I got to watch the Americans who I just haven't had the chance to watch them live. Mm. And I interviewed a few of them. So um, I got some good opportunities in there, but it wasn't how I envisioned had, it. had envisioned. Yeah. So what were the... I guess now that you can, the World Cup's done and dusted and you yeah. can sit and reflect and, you know, whether it's on the plane ride home or yeah. when you crack that bottle of red when you finally <laughs> get back to your couch, like <laughs> what reflections occurred then and what lessons yeah. did you take from all that? I guess that things aren't perfect and sometimes things aren't fair. Um, I, th- I thought I had something I could have contributed, but other people and things out of my control abroad especially didn't sort of see it that way or it didn't work out but I could have easily stayed here in Melbourne and just wrote it off or gone on a holiday to get away from it but I showed up you know and it was bigger than me like I had my own personal disappointment but I wasn't gonna um not promote the world cup or promote the opals you Mm. know that the players, whether it's WNBL, NBL1, Opals, whatever, for me, that's what it's about. And and sometimes I get fucked around or I don't get paid or I get shafted or, or blindsided. But I think just going back to the core of why I do what I do. So I'm on reflection, I'm proud that I made it happen, you know. Like, yeah, I had to pay for a lot of it rather than um, be accommodated and just do my job. Um but I made it work and I showed up and I did, you know, the writing, the hosting to the best of my abilities. And so I'm proud of that. I think mm. that I think I showed some resilience when it really hurt. Yeah. And even just talking about it now, it does make me a bit sad because I would have loved to for it to have been what I dreamed about. But um, I want to go to Paris and I guess that sort of made me a bit more determined to get there you know, and to somehow make it happen, but mm. also realise that there's things out of your control. You can't worry about. Yeah, and that, that's not necessarily a reflection on me. I think mm. you do take it personally and think you're not good enough. Um, but it's not always personal. Yeah. I mean, it is it is good that you're able to, like you said, it's reignited that, that flame and, and, you know, helped what fuel that motivation and determination to make Paris a thing do you reckon it would have you reckon you'd feel this you probably would knowing you but (laughs) whether you'd feel this strongly about having to work as hard as you're going to to get to Paris next year should you have gotten that opportunity in the first place like if if ESPN or you know whichever media provider just handed it to you and said here cover the World Cup for us do you think moving into Paris now that you want to that you would want to put in the work that you know you have to to get there? Yeah, it's a great question because I think what, like, it's taught me that, yeah, nothing's guaranteed, even if it feels like it should be, even if you specialise in something and you might be the only person that does that or the go-to, it doesn't mean that'll fall your way. And it, it was the same with WNBL, sort of gone from the World Cup into WNBL and it wasn't like it had been it wasn't like I hoped it would be um and again yeah you have disappointments but you've got to show up you know and um 
I think, yeah, it's definitely made me hungrier, but it's also shown me that if it doesn't work out, it's okay. That's okay. And it's probably given me a taste of reality too, and that things won't always work out how they you think they should or what you do. You're not always going to get what you think you deserve mm. or what you, you might think you're the best person for the job, but other people don't think that. And that might not be personal. It might be for other factors. So... I think it's given me a reality check in a good way um, because I think I've grown a bit. Um, and yeah, it's pro- like I would say I'm always determined and hungry, but it's given me that mix of a dose of reality, but also the hunger to mm. achieve or have success or yeah, achieve my dream because of the World Cup ex- or the 2022 experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. It is funny. It usually takes a, a significant setback for that reality to hit and thing. And people can usually go one or two ways off that. They, like you said, they can either go on a holiday, bury their head in the sand and forget about it. Oh, yeah, nah, like, all right, cool. This has happened. Yeah, embrace it, feel it, reflect on it, and then set that new goal and, and get yourself on that path to, you know, success. Mm-hmm. And, and then... But you, you have a greater understanding of the work that is required behind it as well. Yeah, and I think because I, I don't think I could have done any more to, to be in the frame for World Cup because I cover, you know, I cover women's basketball. I work on the WNBL. I do all the things that would have put me in the box seat. But that doesn't mean that doesn't equal that position. Mm. So there can be people that have more experience or contacts than you that have never worked on women's basketball but because of those other factors, get those gigs. Mm. And as much as that's tough to swallow, that was a learning too. Um, And then just, I'm very much sort of, because it's been sort of just me since I was 17, that I just, you know, sort of plow through it all. But I really did, like, I lent, lent into other people and some of them were my friends, you know, I'm fortunate to have a lot of friends through basketball and I lent on them. I remember talking to Cheryl Chambers and just bawling my eyes out, you know, and I've been on the journey with her professionally when she's had different setbacks along her coaching journey and I just cried and cried and she was great, like just as a probably as a friend and coach just gave me some really good advice, but I let myself feel it and I lent into people and, you know, felt those feelings rather than just getting on with it because I think that's important too. Was it hard to do? Was it hard to lean on others? For Like oh, you said, 100%. you've been by yourself by seven, yeah, since 17 years 100%. old. Even in WNBL, you know, people well-meaning, asking where I was and why aren't you doing this and where are you? And, and people mean well and they care, but that would just be a dagger to my heart each time. Mm. But yeah, I did have to just be honest, you know, and not put up the front that, like sort of the company line the press release answer and you know was hurt and I was upset and I think just to be genuine like I so much of what I do is interviewing people who who are authentic about their own experience whether that's on or off the court and I sort of had to take a leaf out of their book and when people asked me um or I needed support really lean into being authentic about how I was feeling and what had happened and not sugarcoat it or just 
toe a company line about this is what's happened. Yes, it's disappointing. Mm. It was more than disappointing. You know, it was it was it was devastating, mm. really. So um, I think I ended up learning a lot from the people that I interview. Mm. Did you? Has it shifted your perspective in terms of actually being a bit more vulnerable now? Like, do you find yourself that you're a bit more willing to to do that, and it's it's less about like you riding solo through all the life challenges yeah for sure because yeah like i said it's always just been me and it's not always leaning on the people that you think okay these are my five go-to sometimes the people that show up and stand up with you and for you are the people like cheryl or other people in basketball that i've got good relationships and contacts with but you know yeah some people that you wouldn't expect really rise to those occasions you know and it shows you that people do care for you like yeah they appreciate the work you do and the um job you do covering and showcasing women's sport women's basketball but they do care about you as a person Mm. you know that's really nice it kind of shifts you it makes you realize who you've actually got in your corner oh it does because sometimes you think you've got certain people in your corner and when, when push comes hits, to shove, they're not the there. Fan, they just vanish. Yep. They're not there. Yep. Yeah. And I think too, like, and, you know, there's definitely crossover between work and friendships. And and that's, you know, it is a glorious thing generally. And a lot of my friends, you know, Sarah included, like, have had setbacks. You know, I was on FaceTime with Sarah. We were doing like a Sunday brunch when she was in quarantine after um, being cut from training camp. And um, Sandy Brondello rang her while we were on FaceTime on a Sunday morning and she had ordered her breakfast and I was cooking French toast, I think. She's like, I've got to go, Sandy's ringing me. Um, and, you know, just that devastation. I messaged Steph after, after that and was like, you know, I think something's happening. Um, you know, seeing your friends, but also people in basketball go through those low points too. Because this is something that I don't think people would understand about Sarah's experience just to bookmark it there for yeah. a second but in quarantine so when the two weeks hotel quarantine was a thing when you're coming back mm-hmm. from overseas it just got cut from the Phoenix Mercury in the WNBA now that brunch moment that you two had was that the was that the phone call where she just got cut from the Olympic squad as well yeah 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 and right. um so cut from Phoenix beautiful here's your plane ride home spend two weeks to have a think about where your life is yeah and then a handful of days into two weeks of sitting in a hotel room looking at a wall then i'm just going to drop this one on you as well no more olympic team for you it was just remarkable because um i'm very you know hard on my sleeve and very emotional person and um and i'd sort of met sarah maybe just before we did that podcast and just knew she was a great colorful personality and when i wanted to start that podcast she was just the person i wanted to do it with didn't know her very well but was like if i'm going to do it with a player it's sarah and so we bonded like really sort of quickly because we were in studio over eight doing this podcast and and then she did her knee and it was i was gutted for her because you know we'd just sort of become friendly and i just thought she was just terrific and you know she goes through that and um and then then I think when she came back from the knee, actually, you helped me um, organise the team. We organised like a surprise lunch for her. Do you remember that at, um, in Paran? Oh, um, yep, 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 yep. I do remember the team. that. Yep. And so I've seen a lot of 
adversity she'd had and then obviously being cut from phoenix and then you know then you've got to come home and quarantine for two weeks so i think we'll yeah you, you just think of ways you can support people and knew she had a lot of time on her hands so it was like well let's have a brunch you know like can't do it in person we'll do mm. it on facetime mm. and when she said sandy was calling her and then she said she'd call me back and then a bit of time passed and she had it and i thought oh oh and um i think she texted me and sort of said what had happened um and you just think oh not again not again um and yeah i messaged steph um just saying i think this has happened you know um because you know i just imagined that sarah would be in that state where it's just sinking in and i just thought i've got to tell you guys so you can sort of jump in and start that support Mm. thing um yeah so you just hurt like you just you hurt for them like anyone that you care for when they're hurting you you feel for them um and then you know we we really couldn't have imagined what had happened i don't know however long later it was six weeks or something when she'd get called up and remember we were doing the NBL one show and she'd been playing for the super cats and, mm. and uh and we spoke about it on the show and i got really emotional i think i cried on the show because i just i'd known what she'd been through and just the ups and downs and um yeah i was just so happy for her mm. you know so happy that she got there um and she was on you know olympian because it's what she deserved but yeah, it's just nice to know that when the tables are turned too and you're going through stuff in throughout 2022 that she's one of the ones that has popped up in your corner that you oh you yeah know, a few years back you'd be like i don't know you from a bar so yeah yeah and well the thing with sarah is like she always is interested in you whether it's you talk on the phone text in person she'll always be like oh you look nice oh, i love your hair how are you what do you, you know she always takes an interest and um you know and the great thing was is that yeah it was a bit of a scenic route to the world cup for me but she was there, she was playing. Like how special to be able to see that, you know, in not just your friends, but yeah, people that you've been on the professional journey with because I'd seen her, yeah, do her ACL, have setbacks with with um, the training contract and initially not making the Olympics. And, you know, I've seen them with other players too, you know, Shyla Hill, I was at her draft um, day and covered her hub season where she broke out. And then suddenly she had, you know, she was all alone being cut in the WNBA. Same thing back in quarantine. And, um, and yeah, look, I probably blur the lines with becoming friends with, with people right throughout. It's not just the players. It's, it's volunteers. It's coaches. It's support staff. It's everyone. It's just who I am. And, um, you know, sometimes it's meant that, you know, if occasionally things can be a little bit blurred. But I just... I'm just the sort of person that will be social and make friends where, mm. whatever I do, whether I work in a supermarket or whether I cover women's mm. basketball. So, yeah, um, yeah it's uh, – you yeah, you're often there through the highs and the lows. And, you know, and then a few weeks ago, Shayla won a championship um, mm. in her 100th game. So it's very special to be along the journey for the highs and the lows. I guess it comes down to – the why you do what you do like the sport aspect of it is obviously the thing that ignited the passion but it would be the people that you 
get to interact with and you can call friends. Yeah, Whereas, yeah. you know, and, t- and typically the media and athletes and coaches don't necessarily have the best relationship. Yeah. So it is nice to, I guess it would be the people that you have met and would consider to be in your corner yeah. and in your circle as friends that, that keep you going. Yeah, it's a byproduct. Like my best friend, Rachel Jarry, I met her when Bulleen won their first championship in 2011. And, um, and you know, we've been through so much together like you know through a really low low where um you know in in at the start of 2012 we were um we were attacked we were um robbed and bashed by a gang in the city and um you know i can't imagine going through a low low with anyone um let alone seeing someone you care about be hurt in front of you and that was months out from an olympics so um we've been through so much together um and yeah, look, you don't get into journalism or anything to make friends. It's a byproduct. But um, I feel so lucky because I've made the connections and friendships that people get through playing, you know, the, like you have through playing and being involved. It's just mm. I haven't been on court, um, but I'm still so lucky to have made so many connections and here and, you know, imports that have played here and gone on around the world, I still keep in touch with and all those special connections. So I'm really lucky because, mm. yeah they make up a lot of my friend and support base. Yeah, for sure. How important was, like obviously you touched on that night where you and you and Rach ended up in that situation. Um, and obviously you share as much as you want to share about this, but how important was the fact that she was there for you yeah. and you were there for her? Yeah. Like, Cause that was a, that's a, nasty situation yeah. you don't wish on anybody yeah I think too um, the way that I had I was wrapped around by basketball so um, she was playing for Pauline Boomers at the time and I was always around there because um, I covered them through later and they just treated me like I was one of the girls so I'll never you know forget what those people did for me from um, Tom and Robin Ma, Michelle Timms Liz Cambage um we were, um, you know, good mates at the time and um, I had some facial injuries and I remember, um, I think the next day, Liz had bought me a bracelet um, with oh, some sort of protection crystal or something, bought me a bracelet and came and visited me at home when I had facial injuries and bought me little cakes or something and um, was really good to me. And Liz was only 20, like I was 24, but Liz was 20. Um and then they sort of all went off to the Olympics when we went to court and Alice Kunek came to court with me. And um, I haven't seen Alice for a long time, um, but we still, you know, keep in touch. And she's, you know, played on the other side of the world, but I'll never forget. And same with Liz, like I don't, not in contact with Liz now, but I'll never forget what they did, you know. And whether you're friends or not, or you don't talk as much or you're on different sides of the world, what all of them did for me. Lauren Pierce um, was a development player and I'd one of the things that got stolen was my handbag and it was never recovered. And Lauren Pierce would have been 18 and she bought me a phone from the supermarket. So I had a phone to use in the meantime. Mm. Like I will never forget those things. Mm. Um, and all of basketball that rallied around me um, because fair enough, do that for Rach. She's one of your own, but I wasn't. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, it's funny, like it's over 10 years now since it happened, but Rach and I have never really spoken about it. 
Um, I don't know whether we will one day, but we definitely share something that only the other realizes. And even though we we're in the same situation, I guess what happened to us was also a bit different. We had different experiences within that experience, but yeah, it's something that no doubt bonded us. Like for a little time afterwards, like I sort of went straight into counseling and um, that was really painful. Um, and she sort of went, she played the next week. Like it happened on the Sunday night, Sunday morning. She played on the Friday night in mm. Sydney and I went to Sydney, like the boomers got me to Sydney so I could support her. Mm. Um, and she sort of went straight back into playing. She had the Olympics, you know, her first Olympics. And so I sort of went the other way, did the victims of crime process, went to counselling, went to court. And yeah, as I said, when I was in going to the court cases, she was at the Olympics and I didn't want to bring that up to her. I, I felt like she probably tried to push through understandably with the playing stuff and I went the other way. And then there was a time where we didn't have any contact for a little while and... Um, and then we sort of came back together, which was great, but we just handled it differently. And she said that, you know, she obviously pushed through with achieving her lifelong goal. And then once that was achieved, fell in a bit of a heap with it. So it's really surreal reflecting on it, you know, that something so awful happened to us, but we were so lucky that we weren't more seriously injured or killed mm. because, you know, they had weapons and um, they seriously injured another victim they did three attacks in 90 minutes and the third attack the victim was um stabbed so Mm. we were so fortunate um it's yeah just kind of like an unspoken thing between us though yeah it's yeah it's um it's a nice reminder that you do have those people in your corner and building that well, you'll always have that emotional connection with the important ones. Yeah, because like, yeah, like I said, you know, um, Liz and I aren't in contact. Alice messaged me the other day for my birthday, which was nice, but we're not in regular contact. But, you know, Alice came to court with me, you know, and and it was a publicised story because of Rachel, because of all the victims, all that kind of stuff, probably a little bit of myself too. So like walking out of court and having a media pack wanting to talk to you, it was like... The tables had been flipped. Mm. Um, and these, you know, Alice and Liz and Lauren um, Pierce and all those girls were young, a few years younger than me. But the maturity they showed and just their care, I'll never, ever forget that as long as I live. Mm. You know, I'll always be thankful to all of them. Everyone at Bulleen and in basketball that supported me because, as I said, I was just a local journo. They didn't, I wasn't a player. They didn't owe me anything. That's a reflection on you as a person, though. Like you take genuine care in, you know, the happiness and the well-being of other people and the type of person you are transcends your job title. Like people see journalists, they see media personality, but when you actually get to know Megan Husswaite as a person, like, yeah, you've got that tight circle of people that you care about and they care about you because you care about them mm-hmm. you're not just a you know step over people and trample trample them to get what you want mm-hmm. you're very much a oh, there's a right way to not even just go about your job there's a right way to go about life mm-hmm. and, and there's a right way to to treat people and deal with people and and 
you know your values and your morals have have clearly led the way and as a result you've got it comes back to comes back to you in moments where you need it yeah which is nice like you know whether it is you believe in karma or you don't believe in karma but it's i'm a massive believer that you your life is a byproduct of the energy you put out in the world so if you're positive and you help people and you care about people then that will come back to you when you need it to so positivity will come back to you when you need it to people will help you out when you're in your darkest days like because you've been or you take the lead in that like i don't think people nowadays realize how important that is and i don't think people understand that yeah shit's gonna hit the fan at times and and stuff's gonna be it's not gonna go the way you want it to go but have faith that the way you carry yourself as a person is going to come back around to you when you need it Mm. to i think i like yeah the idea of that and i think i've always been an emotional person like i feel other people's feelings and experiences but i think probably reflecting like what happened there has given me more empathy for people's situations and and a lot of those stories have been things i've covered in basketball than not on court like through um, people's experiences with mental health or domestic violence or health um or just those ups and downs that we touched on with like sarah and shyla that um there can be really high highs and low lows and no rhyme or reason to why the lows or adversities happen so i think probably through my own experience i have yeah maybe another layer of like understanding or a feel for that like Mm. empathy Mm. um and yeah everything kind of intertwines doesn't it somehow yeah it does (laughs) and it's a quality you can't really teach like empathy is one of those things that i mean i won't say it's one of those things that you've either got it or you don't but for some people it just comes naturally yeah and you see for some people it doesn't yeah and you see the people that when it comes naturally to them they've got genuine relationships and they they're confident in those relationships because you just feel it like everyone understands there's that unspoken connection of where people stand with each other yeah because they under they understand each other and i think that's yeah like a lot of you know people talk to me about my relationships with the players and the trust i have and that kind of thing and it it stems back a long time like that stuff doesn't happen overnight so um you know i think it's been 15 seasons covering the WNBL, and um you know that's going right back through Siebel and and being um there reporting when beck cole did all her knee injuries and um when Cheryl got um, um, sacked from Bulleen, um and that you know was devastating for her and then seeing her win her first championship and her second championship and all those sort of things like being on the journey that's you can't um, replicate that time so I think you know you just if you are around long enough you do see all those things and those people remember that too. So mm. I think they that's where that trust comes from. Mm. Um, and you, and in saying that too, I think that can kind of add to your credibility. And then you've got, you know, Bunce. I didn't know Bunce that well, but she came to me wanting to tell her story. She knew enough about me as a person and journo. 
and and then we sort of had an experience that was unlike any other in sharing her story for the first time Mm. and and then I think yeah that shows people that you can create a safe space and then they will end up approaching you about wanting to talk Mm. so that's it's special but it doesn't happen overnight yeah it takes it takes time it takes work and but again it's it's the type of person you are which is nice oh thanks chris um i wouldn't mind kind of steering back into the the media space yeah because stereotypically and you would understand this a lot more than i would but the media now and it probably was seems like a very male driven world and as a 17 year old female going into that that environment and that world have you seen a have you seen it shift which i'm assuming is a yes and i hope it's a yes but we'll explore it a little bit more (laughs) um but how have you overcome those challenges in that i suppose you know gender inequality space It has improved for sure um, in this in my sort of nearly 20 years, which is awesome. Um, when I first started, there wasn't a lot of women in sports media when I was 17. And I remember being maybe 19 years old and just needing a bit of mentor mentoring from women. Like I had great men allies around me at my job, but needed someone, needed a woman, like needed some lived experience. And I emailed maybe five, I reckon there was like maybe five women that were sort of working in AFL and I emailed them, again, cold email, and just explained who I was, what I was doing and that I just, you know, would love to pick your brain, ask some questions, get some advice. And one woman wrote back to me and that was Callie Underwood. And at that time, um, she was calling footy on radio but hadn't done it on TV yet but was a sports reporter and been around for a while and so she'd, she came back and said yeah let me know if you're ever in Melbourne and so we went and had a coffee and forever grateful that she took the time and gave it to someone that she didn't know me anything um, and I can definitely say the you know the quota I guess has has improved so much since then there's women working across a range of men's and women's sports so I think women working in the sports media space but also the evolution of women's sport has changed so much in that time and then the challenges have have probably evolved too over that time so um, I think maybe when I started it was a bit novelty certainly in regional um, Victoria having a young girl covering sport full-time particularly footy like I didn't feel that um, in basketball but in footy I did feel it Um, and there were you know challenges that came with that Um, but I had strong men as I said like allies around me that I worked with that you know stepped up and stood um, stood up and stepped in when when needed because I was young like not just a female journo but I was a teenager and then probably more these days, it's probably more around equity, equality in terms of pay, you know, not being paid, doing the same gig, sometimes the same, like with a guy and he's paid different to me and we're mm. sharing the job. Yeah. You know, you might co-host an event with a guy and he'll be being paid more than me. Yeah. And that's like, why? Yeah. 
So it's probably a, these days more be around that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Right. It's um, yeah, it's a debate that I feel like will, will rage on for for a long, long time, and hopefully it does, you know, continue to improve because you see it like you're exceptional at what you do, and I've seen sideline reporters who are males who are not nowhere near the level that of knowledge experience or just quality that you bring as well so hopefully it is um yeah it's 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 a conversation that we need to keep having for sure um and hopefully hopefully we do but um and i think if generally like um even at SEN, like I never, I worked in a very male-dominated environment, but it never felt that way. I never had any issues working mm. at SEN amongst men and retired footballers and athletes and jocks. Yeah. Um, but I was always, I think I, I earned respect because, and I remember someone saying to this, like, you know your shit. Mm. And so, you know, I wouldn't cop it from listeners and stuff because I knew what I was talking about. Yeah. And so I think that's the main thing, you know. Like WNBL is a big space I work in. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm sure I make blues, um, but I generally know what I'm talking about. Mm. And so um, you can criticize my voice or the way I deliver it or what I wear or what I look like. Um, but if you know your stuff, it's pretty hard to actually criticize the job you're doing. Mm. I think it's when you don't know, Yeah. Um, you get found out. Is that where you, you kind of, I guess, take that level of confidence in? Is just I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I know I know more about WNBL than most yep. people. Yeah. Um, and I guess that teamed with my passion. You know, I just love it, mm. and I feel it. Mm. Um, and and the relationships, um, and that chemistry, yeah, that you have with people that comes across in interviews. Mm. Um, those things. That's kind of my superpower. I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's something to be said for that because a lot of people talk a very very big game in terms of knowing their stuff. Yeah. And they when they're put on the spot and they actually have to step up and form. There's a lot of people that that, <laughs> that freeze yeah. and it you, they get found out pretty quickly. Yeah. And you know from a I guess from a from a general takeaway like. Make sure you know your stuff. If you're gonna if you're gonna talk the talk, yeah, you got to make sure that you can step up and walk the walk when the, when the time comes, right? Yeah, and it all just comes back to like my why through the good and bad times when I've had, you know, those work challenges. Is my why as the players like they don't get wall to wall media coverage, so I do everything I can to give them coverage and um, to showcase how amazing they are, to showcase their stories about you know, overcoming adversities, being mums, um, all, all the different things that they go through. So I see that as a privilege, mm. not, you know, it's not my right. And um, yeah, so I do take it seriously. Yeah, really why, seriously. Why do you feel it hasn't been, do you feel it hasn't been taken seriously up until this point? Um, no, I think sometimes... I'm like so invested in the WNBL to my strength and to my detriment. Um, and I've seen the best of uh, best and worst of that. Um, and yeah, I think sometimes people are involved for a season or a reason and they mightn't stick it out. That mightn't be a long-term thing, but it can, 
um, the coverage is so important. So it's important that we highlight them the best we can mm. and we get things right. And um, we present it in the most professional way we can. Yeah. So I think those things are so important because if any of them lag a little bit, it affects the overall product because um, these are world-class athletes. So we want to be showing them and telling their stories mm. and um, it's what they deserve. You know, it, they deserve the best. It'll make you want to bang your head against the table when you fight so hard for that and to give these world-class athletes the respect and the coverage they deserve and you go up the chain and say, this is what we're going to do and this is how we want to cover it and yeah. you just run into a roadblock. It's like, nah, no yeah. thanks. And yeah. do you, like, I'm just painting a picture in my head and I've got, disclaimer, I've got absolutely no idea how the media world works in terms of, sports coverage but i feel like at the at the top end of the table and the ones that that sign off on on these things and are allocating funds to what should be covered and what shouldn't be covered i feel like there's a lot of you know crusty old men with lots and lots of money that that don't give female sport or don't want to give female sport the recognition it deserves yeah yeah and so much of it comes to money like Mm. you look at the afl broadcast rights and it is a billion dollar business that the that fox footy channel 7 they pay for it they pay for the right to broadcast that product with the WNBL and other sports they're paying to be on screen so that's a big shift in itself Mm. so so much of it comes down to money and like it's an it can be a vicious cycle of not having enough money not having enough sponsors not having any money, not having any sponsors, being able to afford this, cost-cutting here, getting this for what they paid for. All those sort of things um, add up, you Mm. know? So, but, and they can be really challenging, but I think it's also what can make the job so satisfying is because you know what, um, say, the WNBL has got in the past and when you can give them give the players or teams or stories coverage or give them a platform and i think good stories are good stories Mm. so like with in terms of writing like um when i've when i pitch and um you know the alex bonton story to news corp and they say yep and she's the cover story of the weekend lift out and two pages inside because it's a good story it doesn't matter that she plays women's basketball or that she was you know, an AFL footballer, a good story is a good story. Mm. So I think knowing, having that new sense for what's a good story and knowing where to place it. Um, and again, that comes back to being like an unrestricted free agent that um, I do the work I want to do. I'm approached to do work. And if I don't want to do it, if it doesn't sit right with me, I say no. Mm. And I've been criticized for that a bit in the last 12 months with people from the outside making comments privately and publicly about things that I mightn't have been involved in not knowing the full story but the whole but really one of the whole reasons why I freelance is because I just want to do the work I want to do mm. I don't want to do stuff for clickbait I don't you know if there's certain things I don't want to do I don't do it so I can dedicate my time to doing the work I want to do mm. it's a, that's important to me it is and I think it's out of the entire discussion we've had it's probably 
been a bit of a you can pick it up as a massive driving force behind why you do what you do because you're incredibly passionate about it mm. but you've found that you found that passion at an early age and you you've kept it going through you know the the people that you've met and you've kept it going through the work that you've done and i think it it feels to me like you see the byproduct of the work that you do you know your dedication your motivation the time you put in and the effort you put in and then you see the end result in terms of you know a massive jump in in women's sport and using women's basketball as an example you see you know the biggest ever crowd at um, John Kane Arena for when the Flyers played Sydney Mm -hmm. and that's a result of you know whilst it's not solely just you a large part of that is all the work that you do and then you know getting other companies to to follow suit and and it is I think if we want to drive that and it's for anything in life it's not just women's sport but if there's a specific issue that needs you know a big cultural shift around it it takes the weight of the people to do to Mm. to drive that forward and i think like i couldn't do the things i do if i worked for someone full-time and i was on a lead and Mm. i just i don't want to do that stuff i don't want to write stuff for clicks yeah so i just um you know i i do freelance for news corp when it's a good fit for me and i say no to them probably more than i say yes but that's my decision and i don't answer to anyone so I make my decisions Mm. um and then you know like espn i found a great um niche with during the WNBL season i was doing sideline for the espn WNBL games and yeah just struck up a great little working relationship with them and and they've published everything i've pitched and there's been a range of of different stories from you know the 11 mums in the league to the women that have to work three jobs and play WNBL. um and i really appreciate that you know, they're just after the storytelling, not the cheap click, not the sexy story or the drama. Um, so you got to, yeah, you got to sort of move around sometimes and find that good um, fit. But yeah. generally, I think, you know, a good story wins out. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a nifty little spot to kind of wrap this conversation up. I think, you know, diving into, into the passion and, and, diving into that drive and you know it's it's clear to see that i guess if you were to tell your story to other people that's that's a big thing that they would take away i know i've taken that away from because we we've known each other for a little while yeah. but in terms of actually understanding each other on this level i don't think we've had that no so i feel like that over the last hour or whatever it is that we understand each other a lot more yeah. now which is cool and you know, I, I get the passion, I get the drive and, you know, and, and now seeing you do what you do, I understand it a lot more. And I think that's a takeaway for a lot of people to, to have from this chat is that, you know, you've got to find, you've got to find your why. Mm. Like there's a lot of things in life that, that happen and shit happens, mm. good shit happens and bad shit happens. Yeah. And I think if you've got that, that, north star of terms of why you're doing what you're doing then it does make life a lot easier to navigate for sure it's so true and i think the passion is what sustains you like it keeps you going through the great times where you're flying and it and it is what keeps you going you know when you have the setbacks but thank you chris because you like provided 
you know, I, I hope I provide a safe space for people. You provided like a really safe, comfortable space for me where I've spoken about stuff that I haven't before, you know, and stuff where I've been vulnerable and I'm not um, really fluent at being vulnerable like that, voicing it. So mm. um, I haven't done that with, with anyone. So thank you for providing the space you're, for me to do it. You're most welcome anytime. Great content, Chris. Thanks, Meggie. <laughs> <Thanks, Maxie. laughs>